Yeah, we'll work through it pretty quickly. There's a lot to get through and won't be going over it all again. James has read it, but we want to cherry pick some verses from out of this passage and talk about them and apply them. Now, the thing about James, if you've been reading through it, as Craig suggested, you probably found it pretty confrontational. It is confrontational. It's certainly, James certainly is to the point. Um, But also he's all over the shop. You know, it's like he has a thought and then he has another thought and then he goes back to the first thought. And yet I, I understand that perhaps in his day where they didn't have the benefit of cut and paste like we do, you know, you dictate and it gets written down or you write it down and that's it. You don't want to go through it all again with your quill on your parchment. So the upshot of all of that is for us, it's easy to skim because it's confrontational and it's all over the place. But if we skim, we miss the the gems. We miss the value of what God, through James, wants to speak to us today. So we're in this long passage. Really, this title came to me as I was preparing for today. and In a sense, it's almost a title for the whole of James. It's about wise living through understanding God's ways. And the first verse that our James read from the old James in the Bible, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living in an honourable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. There's a problem that we have, and and it's... I'll try the clicker again. Our next slide, please. There's a problem we have with this, with wisdom. The way we understand wisdom is a little different, a little skewed from the way James understands it. In our current dictionary, it'll define wisdom something like insight, good judgment, ability to discern inequalities in relationships. That's what the dictionary says. But James talks about two types of wisdom. And the first type is in James 3, verse 14 to 16, which I will read again. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's pretty strong. And then again in chapter 4, verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, he says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Quarrels and fights. One version talks about wars and fights, and and I like that. That makes it clearer to me because... Wars tend to involve nations or groups of people or cultural tribal groups against another group, whereas fights is usually individual. That's you and I. I mean, we don't think of wars very much here in New Zealand. But look, when we look at the reality of what's going on in the world today, there's plenty of wars. And I don't know if you've ever been to a war zone. I have in the Middle East. I've spent time with Israelis and I've spent time with Palestinians. And you know, the thing that strikes you is that these are ordinary people who love their families. They want the best for their family and they will say they want peace. 
until you press the right button. You know, they're just like you and I. And yet, when you speak of the other side, all of a sudden, the wisdom produces what's earthly and demonic, and the war and the hatred rages, even to the point of killing each other. And that hatred has been embedded in them for generations. They don't even understand why. And I found it the same over in the islands, especially in, in Micronesia, over in the Solomons and in Papua New Guinea. You get different tribes. They may only be a few kilometers away from each other in the jungle, but they have entirely different cultures, languages, traditions, and expectations. And war constantly breaks out between them because of those differences. And they'll say, yes, we want peace, we love our family, we don't like fighting the other tribe, but the minute somebody appears from the other tribe, the hatred rises up, the sanity disappears, and there's murder. And that's what's happening in the world, and that's what's in the heart of man. It's born in jealousy and selfish ambition. Next slide, please. And here's why the Bible's really clear in 1 John 2.16. John knows, and he says, says, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the heart and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And it's those desires that lie behind this kind of hatred. Because I noticed James's question. He's not saying, what are you guys fighting over? Because everybody will have a reason. Oh, well back in the day that that tribe did this against us or he or she is like that and I don't get on with that. But that's not the kind of question James was asking us. He posed the question of what is causing. And that's an entirely different thing. What is causing this? And I'm not just talking about the Middle East or the islands. I'm talking about now my heart, your heart, These are the things that live deep inside us. The heart is desperately wicked, and no one knows it, the Scripture tells us. Only God knows what really lies in our hearts. And that gets pretty scary. So, why are our passions so strong? We try and impose our will upon other people. Now, think about it. You see that in relationships everywhere, don't you? even in marriages, where one partner will try and impose the will on the other partner. And so much of relationship is about what I can get from you. And that's entirely opposite to what God's description of a good relationship is. Whether it's marriage, whether it's within our family, whether it's work with our neighbor across the fence, God's expectation is not what I can get from my relationship with you. It's what I can give. And so that begins to skew us. And from out of that comes the wars and the attitudes that James is addressing here. Now, he also, in the second half of verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, you are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war and take it away from them, yet you don't have what, um, sorry, you don't have what you want when you ask. You don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. And that's us. That's me. 
I mean, I don't feel like that. I don't think I'm like that. But every so often, something will happen around me, and it's like the Holy Spirit just says, there, Graham, see? That's what's lying deep in your heart. It's back to self again. And this is what I want to change in your life, he says to me. And this is what James is writing about. You see, we live as if prayer doesn't work, don't we? Really, generally, honestly, we do. It's a ritual. We know as Christians we're supposed to pray. If we're going to be a good Christian, surely we must pray. And so we'll say, it. oh, yes, I'll pray for you, and it rolls off our tongue very easily, but how faithful are we in this? You see, prayer is such a key, and it's not just coming to God with our shopping list. It's getting into that relationship with God where we listen more than what we speak, where we come to his word in the morning and we say, Lord, I need to hear from you because I've seen dark things in my life. I see dark things in the world happening. I only need to get the herald every morning to know the world is full of these dark things. And Lord, I need your help with this. And trust him to begin to show us and lead us on the different path. And so we have to begin living as if prayer does work. And we have to begin praying beyond our own needs. Because the other problem I find with my prayer, I often finish and I realize I only prayed for the things that I need. I haven't really thought about God's needs. Well, he doesn't really have needs, but what does God want? What's his plan? What's his purpose? All those people fighting wars or the person at work that I'm fighting a war with, what does God want for them, Lord? It's not, Lord, make my life easier. Make, make him a Christian so my life can be more comfortable. No, -uh. it's not that. It's, Lord, you died for him. And I have real trouble getting on with him. So change my heart. But Lord, bless him as well. Let your kingdom come, Father, in his life and in my life so you will be glorified. The truth is, I fail to pray that way like I should. But I need to. According to James, this is the way I need to be praying so that prayer works. So heavenly wisdom... I think we've got a slide. I think we've got ahead of ourselves a little bit. No, we need to go back, sorry. Yeah. Wisdom from above. We've talked about earthly wisdom, but really the focus on the wisdom from above, God's kind of wisdom, heavenly wisdom, understanding God's ways, according to 3.13, if you are wise and understand God's ways, it's heavenly wisdom. We've got to be willing to yield. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that says it all. If I have true reverence for Christ, I'm not going to treat you badly. If I've been praying for you in an attitude of reverence for Christ, I'm not going to come out and criticize you or hold bad attitudes as easily as I normally do. And I'm not saying the cure comes overnight. It's a process but out of reverence for Christ in my prayer life, true reverence, then I'm going to be probably submitted. I mean, I've heard sermons where it talks about wives submit to your husbands. You know, it's true, but you only need to read a couple more verses on 
And Paul says, be submitted one to another out of reverence for Christ. And so if I've got an, if I've got an issue, say, with a partner or a workmate or a colleague or my neighbour over the fence, we've got issues that divide us. But as we both draw closer to Christ, that division shrinks. The gap is gone. You know, it's like the triangle. And so the best thing I can do to help resolve that argument is to pray for that person as well as pray for myself, but in the right way. And then I begin to realize that it doesn't come down to who's right or wrong. My neighbor may be 100% wrong. He might say the grass is blue, and I know it's green, but it doesn't matter. The issue is peace. The issue is love. And I don't find it in myself like I should, but I find it out of reverence for Christ as I submit myself to him in prayer, and that's proper prayer, and it's heavenly wisdom, willing to yield. And it's given to those who ask. I mean, James, in his jumping around, gosh, he needed a good editor, didn't he? An editor would have put these thoughts together so there was a nice sequential flow to this book. But now he has us jumping back to chapter 1, verse 17, which I'll read to you. He says here, um, I've just written down the wrong reference here. Um, James 1, 5 was the verse that I was looking for. He says he's willing to give wisdom to those who ask. Well, he's willing. He'll give us this wisdom. We just have to be aware of our need. That's where it starts. And ask, and he will give it. It's a promise. Now, the way we live very often is we fluctuate between two wisdoms. We tend to fluctuate, and we kind of think wisdom is the common sense. It's the idea of what appeals to us and what we understand and what can work in practice is wisdom. But God is saying, no. It's not like that. Wisdom's not a neutral thing where it's just a bit of this, bit of that, whatever works and is functional in our lives. That's culture. But culture is both profane and holy. It has aspects of both, and that wisdom is the same. But the wisdom from heaven is very clear. It's clearly different to the wisdom that is earthy and devilish. And we've got to proactively seek the wisdom from above each day. And so part of the prayer that works, that's going to work and bring God into my life is the prayer that says, Lord, I want to understand your ways. As I walk out and face my day at my job with my family and all the issues coming to me that I don't even know about, I really need your wisdom. I need your spirit to prompt me with your word so that what I say brings blessing and glorifies your name and isn't out of the thought of my feelings and my understanding. And I especially need it for this person that I struggle to get on with at work, the person that just rubs me the wrong way. Lord, help me to remember that you created that person, that you died for that person just like you did for me. And God will give us that wisdom as we just heard from Naomi in chapter 1 verse 5. So earthly wisdom is not necessarily evil. Next slide, please. 
maybe it's just ineffective. Oh, but hang on, is it? Is that true? Is earthly wisdom? It's like the Samoans will tell you that if you're pregnant and expecting someone, expecting a baby, of course, um, and, and you drink out of a large bowl, then the baby will born, be born with a large mouth. That's wisdom in their culture. And we don't see it in our own culture, but we do see it when we visit other cultures. But you see, is that just, it's not evil, just not true. But there's no neutral ground. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And also Romans 14.23, what does not come from faith is sin. A big bowl may be harmless, but it's moving us steadily away from the truth. We hang on to those things. And I was just talking to Teddy this morning earlier on. We grow up with these ideas and they cling to us through our life and they can lead us away from God in the wrong track. So realize that Jesus was very clear in Matthew 6.24. It's hate or love, God. There's nothing in between. And then in Romans Paul is saying, if it's not born of faith, in other words, if it's not in reliance on God to bring glory to God, then it's sin. That makes it really clear. So, <clears throat> verse four, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. What does that mean? <laughs> the scriptures don't say that. This verse has always been controversial because James is saying something that you can't actually find in the Bible. So either he's... Maybe there was another writing back in the day that he's drawn this from, or it could be more likely a compilation of the way Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Proverbs because James seems to lean very heavily on those two books when he writes his letter. Another version says God yearns passionately, jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. And so he's put a spirit in us and he's passionate and jealous about that spirit. And what's that spirit's job? Well, John tells us that it is to bring the truth. It's to bring Christ to us. It's to show us Christ. He speaks for Christ. And so God is passionate. He is jealous that that should be what's happening in our life, that we are speaking for Christ more and more as we go on and develop our, our Christian walk. If we don't, it's spiritual adultery. That's what he says. It's a little bit alarming, isn't it? You adulterers in verse 4. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? You see, he's talking about worldliness. And we tend to think worldliness is doing that bad thing or this bad thing, but, you know, maybe we shouldn't be watching that movie or singing that song or whatever, but that's not really worldliness. Worldliness 
is it going according to any sort of wisdom that is not God's wisdom because he's a jealous God he's passionate and desiring and like I said before from Jeremiah 17 the human heart is most deceitful of all things desperately wicked who can know it only God knows the depths of my heart 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says no one understands the thoughts of God except the spirit of God and God is passionate about having that spirit bring his thoughts to us and giving us the strength that we can pray that way and we can live that way and thus glorify Jesus Christ he's a jealous God and one of the ways he's jealous is about judging because we get up to verse 11 don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? There's two words, two thoughts around judging. Often it's the same word, but the context will determine the thought in the original language but this one is to to try to condemn to punish and the other is just to distinguish or determine or decide and they're two di very different things and the way I remember it is when you see the old English courts of law the old judges during the trial where somebody is being decided guilt or innocence they're wearing a white wig as they act like the referee to determine the truth but then once the truth has been determined and it's guilty and they come back for the sentencing the judge when he sentences to death wears a black wig because now this isn't determining the truth anymore but it's determining the punishment and so those are the two words for judging exactly the two words and one of them is fine for us the other one isn't first corinthians 5 12 paul says it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders but certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning and so we but especially leaders help us we help each other by judging actions if they're sinful, if they're not aligned with the word, then we're meant to do that and we're meant to help our brothers and sisters by gently, Galatians 6.1, if a brother is overtaken or a sister is overtaken in sin, you who are spiritual, we go to them, we gently and carefully and prayerfully point out to them where what they're saying or they're doing is not in line with God's word. We're meant to judge each other in that respect but the judging that we have problem well me I have problem with is a skewed attitude and that's where it's wrong where I forget that this person is loved so much by Jesus Christ that he died for him or her my attitude and I, I can betray that to you if you come up to me and say oh did you know so and so I can just buy a look give you a, oh him oh him oh him oh 
and suddenly you have got the idea, oh, Graham doesn't like that person. There's something wrong with that person. I better have a, a bit of a guard against that person. And all of a sudden, I have defiled that person, even just with a look, because I've planted a seed of doubt in your mind as to their worthiness. I've placed a sentence upon their worth and upon their character. And that's the kind of judging of the black wig that we're required not to do because God is our judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do I have to judge my neighbour? God is jealous. Jealous when I act, when I lack humility and act as if I'm better than my neighbour. The other way that God is jealous is here with self-confidence, carrying on towards the end of four, verse 13, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year, we'll do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. I've learned about that since I've lived in Hamilton. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants me to do well, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Now, I don't think James is saying that every time I say something like, yes, I'll come for dinner tomorrow, God willing. I don't think that's what he means, that I have to tack God willing on like punctuation, like we do amen at the end of our prayers. That's not the idea at all. But, you know, for many years I was so busy... I did a lot of travel and I was on the run. And, and looking back now, I can see how the plans I had became my focus really without consulting God as I made them. And, and I, I certainly didn't see it at the time, but it's like I was treating God like, well, Lord, I've, this is my plan, come and bless it. And I think my prayers were focused that way a lot. Lord, I'm about to go and do this and do that. I need your blessing, so bless me in Jesus' name. And, and that was my prayer. But the, what James is warning us about is that very thing. One of the things I've learned, and I, I try and put it into practice when preparing like to preach this morning, is I spend the whole process saying, Lord, I need you. Holy Spirit, give me the ideas and the thoughts and guide me. Reveal to me the things that I need to say and reveal to me the things that I don't need to say. And I work through that. And that's how I refine the message. But that's the way we're meant to do our planning. And I wish I'd done that more. And it's kind of an, a prideful arrogance thing, even though I don't recognize it or intend it. It's almost like, here I am doing this, doing that. And people tend to say, oh, wow, that's a great job. Or you're, you're important or thank you. It's so good that you came here to my church or whatever they said. And just silently and quietly in my mind, I'm elevating myself. I'm thinking, oh, man, oh, that's good. And yet I don't even recognize that it. it is so, so subtle. Isn't the devil so subtle? 
He really is. He knows the hot button to get me distracted from God. So I don't want to plan by myself and then beg him to come and fix it when I screw up. I don't want to do that anymore. If I feel there's a screw up, I want to be able to look back and say, but Lord, this is your purpose because I've consulted you every step of the way. I want that confidence in my life. So God is jealous when I lack humility by elevating my ways above his ways, and it's oh so subtle. So next slide, please. Do we understand God's ways? Do we know what our dominant passion is? And really this is, I think, what James is getting at. You see, there's nothing wrong having a passion. But if it takes the place of God, or it's bigger in my life, it looms bigger than God, then it's sin. And like I was just saying with planning, my plans took all my focus, and so it became bigger than God. And it may have just been temporary while I was planning, but it was bigger than God, so it was sinful. I mean, I... Let's call a spade a spade. It was sinful. It wasn't neutral. It was wrong, and I want to do better. But you see, having a passion is right because I'm made in God's image, you're made in God's image, and God is a passionate God. He's a jealous God. But you see, it's jealousy without spite or ill will or envy. It's jealousy just as in a superior passion. And God is jealous of me, not envious of me. He's, gosh, I've got nothing for him to be envious about. But he wants me for himself. Totally. A hundred percent. Just like Christ, his son, was totally a hundred percent for me when he died for me. That's what God wants from me. And my struggle is to be like that, to give that back to him. And that's the wisdom of heaven. But what's your most dominant passion? I mean, there's nothing wrong with golf. But if we're playing it every Sunday morning instead of going to church, then I would question it. Hey, that, that's it. It's our priorities. And that's what we need to think about. Jesus didn't come just to die on the cross. Can you change slides, please? And that's something that I think I slip into quite a lot, is that you just get that way that, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. Thank God for that. That's back there. Now I'm up here. It's like, yeah, I know the old, old story, the gospel. That's great. But now I'm here. I've walked with the Lord so many years since I discovered the gospel, past tense. But, you know, my old self, Paul wrote to the Galatians, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live this in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul lives in the present and continuous 
power of the cross. And that's my challenge. I have that verse first and forefront every morning to remind me of why it is I'm coming to God's presence, opening his word and spending some time with him because it's no longer I that liveth. His spirit is in me and I want that spirit to have full voice through me. I want him to have full command of my responses. I want him to lead me and guide me for the glory of God. It's prideful to think I can change by myself, but I so often do. I see these things and I'll say, oh, Lord, it's like Craig mentioned last week about the tongue. I say something that's wrong and I think, oh, Lord, that's bad. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I focus on the, the bad thing I've done instead of focusing on Christ, the answer. You know, I've got, like Craig said last week, I've got to pause and stop and say, Lord, help. I don't want to be doing this. Help me to shut my mouth before I open it in the future, at least to think so I can pull back from what I was going to say instead of just blurting it out automatically. And that's one aspect of fighting Satan. But the other aspect is to say, God, I need you to change my heart. I need you to do some surgery in there, some deep digging to get the root of this out of my life because I can cut the weed off at the surface but then, and you probably found this, then again after a while it suddenly pops up again and takes us by surprise and shames us. No Lord, deal the root. I'll cut the, I'll cut the weed but deal the root so it doesn't pop up anymore in my life. So God, according to 4, 6 and 7, just as I head towards the end, he gives grace generously as the scriptures say, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself before God. That's the gospel. Humble yourself before God. Expect his grace, which is one version says grace upon grace. He gives it generously. And so he will answer this prayer. And we're not to worry about the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I've known Christians who've done great battle against the devil, but I think it's misplaced, to be honest with you. The point is, well, I remember once in Arizona, I was at a house of a very good friend. He's just built a nice house out in the desert. And, of course, when they built the house, they disturbed the desert. And I went and I had a meal there that night. And in the islands, you take your shoes off all the time. You you walk inside either in your socks or your bare feet. You never wear shoes inside. And I just got in the habit of that. And so when I got to their house, I kicked my shoes off and I went in in my socks. Now, they don't do that. They wear shoes inside or slippers without fail. Anyway, I enjoyed my meal. And as I was about to leave, it was dark. I went outside and my host came to the door and turned the light on and my shoes were there and I started to slide my foot in the shoe and he pulled me back and he picked up my shoes and shook them and a little black scorpion fell out of one of them. I, I was not consoled when he told me, oh, it's only little, but the little ones are the toxic ones apparently, not the big ones. But, you know, that's what I think of the devil. If we're forewarned, prepared... We don't need to stick our foot in the shoe. 
you know? It's only when we're ignorant, not prepared, not forewarned, that we're liable to get bitten. Jesus defeated the devil at the cross. He walks in our shadow as we walk close to God. The real cure for the devil is to be close to God. You know, the wolf won't strike the sheep when he's with other sheep and walking with the shepherd. And so James doesn't talk much about the devil, but he says resist him and he will flee from you. Understand God's ways. God promises to lift us up in verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honour. Humble yourself and he will lift you up in honour. So if we live in verse 7 to 9, humble yourself before God, resist the devil, come close to God and he'll come close to you. He will lift us up in honour. So just as I close now, I just want to say, James is writing to warn us. And Craig mentioned right at the beginning as he gave a background to James that he'd been one of the senior leaders of the church in Jerusalem for many years. And then when the church was dispersed, this is long before the days of Paul, before Paul wrote his letters or anything like that. When the church was dispersed, James wrote this letter to the Jews who'd been scattered. Now, these people had been used to growing up in Jerusalem where the um, religious authorities had everyday rulership in their lives, and now they were scattered to places that were full of earthly wisdom. And this is like us. We're aliens here. We live in a place full of earthly wisdom. James knows that, and he knows our senses get dulled by our daily proximity, proximity to this earthly wisdom. And this is why he's so in our face about it, because he wants to pull us back and wake us up. And James also knows, like John wrote, but when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. Who has been sinning since the beginning? The devil. But the Son of God came to destroy his works. So how well do your actions mirror your faith? That's the question that I pose as I finish. What passions hinder your ultimate passion for God? Loving God is never reduced to acts of obedience. God is not a bunch of information. He's not do this, do that. He's a person. And understanding his ways is crucial. He's a mystery. God is a mystery. And it's one that we will never resolve, but he reveals himself progressively through Jesus Christ, through grace in response to our humble desire. Ask for him to redirect your passion. Romans 8. 32, Paul said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give, him, give us all things? Ask him to give you the passion for him that will redirect your lives and bring him glory. Father, 
James is pretty rough. But if we're honest, we acknowledge, Lord, that we need that. We need to be woken up sometimes. And you are so good with us, so full of grace. You realize, Lord, that we want to be better, want to be different, but this worldly wisdom that surrounds us and comes at us from our TV and the news and workplace, and it's just constantly, constantly pulling us away from that faith in heavenly wisdom. Father, help us. Give us that passion, that desire to know you, to love you, to glorify you. And in return, Father, give us the peace and the joy of living according to your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.